Acheron, The Demon King, by Morgan Huxley. Find more great stories at audioiron.com. Chapter 10 Mary took the express train and she reached the old woman before anyone had a chance to stop her, said James. We don't know what she said to her because we weren't monitoring the museum. On one hand, Stuart had an inclination to express irritation and punish people. What was the point of having anyone monitoring Mary at all if she could flee the house and get all the way to London? On the other, the girl was coming into her own unique power and containing her wasn't going to be easy work for mortal men. We have to be better informed going forward, Stuart said evenly. Monitor Margaret from now on. In the meantime, whatever she said didn't frighten Mary enough to send her fleeing for the hills. Instead she returned home. I'll drop by and see where we stand. Stuart arrived as Mary was making breakfast. He knocked on the back door that led to the garden rather than coming to the front. She saw that today he was dressed in expensive clothes, slacks, Italian shoes, a silk shirt, but no jacket and tie. In one hand he held the leather pouch containing his tarot cards. With a smile she let him in. I am so glad you came, she said. Would you like something to eat? I am making chips and egg. He paused as if his answer required careful deliberation, then said, why not? I had eggs at five, but I think six hours is long enough for the cholesterol to have settled in my veins. In a matter of minutes, they were seated at the table with coffee, two filled plates, and the pouch containing Stuart's tarot cards. Stuart finished his food before Mary was half done with hers. Do you want more? She asked. You seem hungry. No, he said. Four eggs and a commensurate weight of potatoes is enough before noon. He sat back and stared at her as if looking into her soul. You seem to be in a very good mood. The time off did you good. I was just tired, Mary said. She didn't want to explain that she'd been frightened of him, that she had been afraid of James and Ahmed. So, do we believe in magic today? He asked. We seem to go from being afraid it's real to being certain we are being duped. We do, do we? She found his words both true and irritating. She stood up, collected their plates, and put them in the sink. She returned with the coffee pot, refilled both cups, and sat down again. I understand it's overwhelming, but you can't keep vacillating between these two extremes, he said. You mean I have to believe whatever you say? Not really. You could decide we are all completely insane, utterly harmless, and very rich. Then you could do what we tell you to do exactly the way we tell you to do it, without a fuss, in order to appease us and in hope of future gain. That would be fine. I could? She asked. I thought the core of magic was belief. Don't you have to have faith in order to make it work? Light switches don't care if you believe in them, Mary. Your car doesn't need your faith in internal combustion engines to start, he said. But magic isn't like that. He shook his head wearily. I'm going to ask you not to tell me what magic is and isn't like anymore. You have no idea what you are talking about. You know stories and rumors and half-understood truths. Correcting all your misimpressions is time-consuming. Do we have some kind of deadline? She asked. In ten days, you'll perform an incantation for us. It's lengthy and it's in Aramaic, he said. So we need your undivided attention. Are you kidding me? She asked. And there is a little Hebrew he added. Since you've studied neither tongue and seem to have no affinity whatsoever with languages, and since the incantation must be perfect, you'll need our help. What's this elaborate spell do? She asked. 
He sat forward and leaned his crossed arms on the table. He looked down at them for a moment, then looked up at her. Mary was very aware of his physical proximity, the sheer size of him, and the slightly citrus smell of his cologne. He was an incredibly handsome man. The more she knew about him, the more mysterious and powerful she understood him to be. She saw that he was considering his words carefully. Does it really matter what the rite does? He asked. Why do you care what the incantation is supposed to do if you don't believe in magic? Now I want to know why you don't want to tell me, she said. He sighed, then he asked, you've read about the standard Wiccan ritual to draw down the moon? It's in every Dianic spell book. I'm sure you've seen it. Of course, she said. That's the one where you call the moon and cast a circle. Well, all right, he said dubiously. You are going to draw down the moon. In Aramaic, she said. And in Hebrew, using words written down by Solomon upon the advice of a genie, or perhaps a demon, or an angel. It all depends on who you believe. Solomon, she said. That's Christian, isn't it? Does that mean you are a satanic cult? He met her eyes, paused, then said, I think almost everyone would agree that Solomon was Jewish. But your choice of words is odd. You are one of us, are you not? Do you want to worship Satan? I didn't mean to offend, she said. We are not in the least satanic. No cats will be killed, he said, then sat back in his chair. What about people? she asked. Will any people be killed? Well, it's certainly not a normal part of our ritual for drawing down the moon, he said. But if you think we should add that bit of theater, I'll talk to the brothers. She said nothing. She could see he was becoming impatient with her, as if he found her light-hearted manner offensive. With a start she realized he was waiting for her to speak. What were we talking about originally? She asked. I was asking you how you wanted to go forward. Are you going to decide to believe in magic and do what we tell you to because you are afraid of us? Or are you going to decide we are well-meaning but insane and that you'll do our incantation in order to please us? Do I have to decide now? She asked. He took her hand. His skin was warm and dry, his grip firm. Mary, I am going to have to insist that you do this particular incantation exactly the way we want it done. That means we don't have time for you to waffle between fear, belief, and defiance anymore. She drew her hand away. Do you understand? He asked. I want you to buckle down immediately and do what we say for the next ten days. What if I say no? Mary had the sudden realization that she was goading him into being stern with her. She liked having Stuart's attention and she wanted to see what was on the other side of his good humor. She felt the blood rush to her face and looked away. Stuart shook his head, like a father tired of chasing a wayward toddler. Then, he smiled. He picked up the pouch containing his tarot cards, removed the black box from inside it, and dropped the cards into his hands. He shuffled them without letting them touch the table then placed them on top of the box. Reaching back into the bag he pulled out a black silk cloth. What if I trade you some magic in return for some cooperation? She cocked her head to one side and asked, What do you mean? Let's bring some joy to your friends, he said. If you agree to learn and perform the incantation exactly as I direct, I'll show you how I cast spells with tarot cards. Mary was silent for a moment, considering his offer. Then, yielding to his good humor, she agreed. All right. Let's see you work some miracles. He held out his hand. Reluctantly she accepted the handshake, 
feeling his large palm press against her small one. He let her go and turned his attention to his deck. Who shall I play Father Christmas for? he asked. Jane? Elizabeth? Margaret? Lillian? Or shall we bring good fortune to them all? Jane, said Mary, then the rest. Done, he said. Forgive me if we do all this a bit quickly, Ahmed and James are on their way here to begin your accelerated lessons. He began swiftly laying out his cards on the silk cloth. Look here, he said, pointing to a card in the center of the spread. See? Here is Jane, he pointed to the Queen of Cups. And Our Lady is here. Our Lady? Mary drew back. You mean Mary? He looked up as if startled, then shook his head. I don't have time for a review of comparative religions. Our Lady, the Lady of Beltane, the Empress, it's all one. The Mother of God? Let's file that conversation away for another day, he said. He looked back at the cards. Now, look at the picture. Here is her little boy, it is a boy isn't it? He is her husband, and he is in a little trouble at work. He pointed at the seven of sticks near a knight of swords. Reaching into the deck, David pulled a nine of cups and placed it over the seven of sticks. Then he pulled a nine of coins from the deck and laid it over Jane's card. He closed his eyes, whispered something, and then gathered up all the cards. He'll be happier at work. She'll come into some money. You can never have too much money with a baby on the way. Now for Elizabeth, in a matter of minutes he had collected and laid out the cards again. Look here, he said. He pointed at a queen of wands, beside her stood the knight of cups and the lovers floated over their heads. Now, in times past we would ask the empress to make her fertile, but I sense that could be inconvenient. He looked at Mary who could only nod dumbly in response. Once again, money will work. And he placed a four of coins over the lovers. They'll have cash for a honeymoon. At that point there was a knock on the door. Mary stood up and by the time she returned with Ahmed and James, there was a new set of cards laid out. Lillian, said Stuart as he studied them. Clearly Venus has her well in hand, and her bow is besotted with her. They have quite enough money. Then he smiled. Reaching into the deck he pulled out the Empress. Whispering, he laid it over the Queen of Swords. That ought to prove something to you, he said. Lillian is forty-two, said Mary. I don't think she wants children. Stuart shrugged and collected the cards. I think she and her husband will very much love their daughter when she gets here. He laid the last set of cards with lightning speed, then, as if startled by what he saw, looked up at Mary. A moment later he returned to reviewing the cards. Mary noted that James and Ahmed were also both riveted on what they saw. Margaret is in a bit of trouble, said Stuart. Mary saw a queen of sticks surrounded on all sides by sticks. The devil and death were featured in her reading, as were judgment and the hierophant. We'll do what we can, said Stuart like a doctor agreeing to treat a fatal illness. In a matter of minutes, he'd laid a half dozen additional cards, including the magician, on the table. He looked up at Mary and said, Margaret has always had bad luck, and she seems perpetually determined to make it worse. Throughout her life she has consistently worked against her own interests and she is doing it yet again. Hopefully the warding spell I put on her will help a few of her misfortunes pass her by. Mary shook her head in consternation. Margaret had seemed quite happy when last they had met. Stuart scooped up the cards, returned them to their box, swaddled the box in silk, and returned it to the black bag. Enough of that, he said. You have things to learn. He looked up at James and Ahmed. 
Where do you want to work? Somewhere comfortable, said James. After a moment's thought he nodded at the living room. Stuart stood up and gestured at Mary to lead them. Mary entered the room, and took an anxious seat in the armchair. Stuart was right, she realized. She vacillated from not believing in magic at all to believing it was real and being afraid of Stuart and his friends. She forced herself to recall her friends and to remember their happiness. Why couldn't she believe that magic was real and could work as well for her as it had for them? Stuart slid the coffee table out of the way, moved the armchair closer to her, then took a seat right in front of her. Now, let me introduce you to my friends. This is Dr. Ahmed Syed, a medical doctor with nine years of experience. Twelve, interrupted Ahmed. Twelve years of experience as an active internist and medical researcher. Mary looked at him, then at Stuart. What on earth were they talking about? This is Dr. James Wooden, also a medical doctor as well as a psychologist. And psychiatrist, James added. Being a doctor is incidental. And psychiatrist, said Stuart. I know, said Mary. You gave me their names. I looked them up online. Remember? I wanted to make sure you remembered who they were, because you are going to let these gentlemen hypnotize you so I can teach you a lot of words phonetically, said Stuart. She sighed. Maybe she would just decide they were insane but well-meaning. What do I have to do? She asked. Stuart turned to James and Ahmed. What does she have to do? I have an injectable pharmaceutical that would help, said Ahmed. No jabs, she said firmly. Then I have a mild sedative she can take by mouth, said Ahmed. Then it's up to you and James. Give it to me, she said. Let's get this over with. She held out her hand. Ahmed handed her little plastic cup full of a clear serum and she swallowed it without additional thought. Her memory of the initiation ritual was formless and fuzzy, but she thought it had gone much as described. How bad could this right be? Stuart stood up and James sat in front of her. Relax a bit, he said. Put your hands in your lap, let your back rest against the cushion. I don't want you to get stiff from sitting in one place for too long. She complied. She could feel her stomach reacting to whatever they had given her. It felt warm and a little unsettled. Some people find the drug you've just taken makes them a little cold. Is that true for you? Do you feel chilly? A little, she said. She felt goose flesh rise on her arms as she spoke. Stuart took a knitted throw from the couch, unfolded it, and laid it across her legs. Close your eyes, James said. Do you feel dizzy? That's another common side effect. Yes, she said. It will pass in just a moment, he said. I need to talk to Stuart and James now. You can listen if you like, though as the medicine takes effect, you'll find us pretty dull. It's all right if you simply rest your eyes and wait. When Stuart starts talking to you, you'll find you can remember everything he says. He's going to teach you a kind of song. It's a pretty song and it is easy to remember. In fact, you may know it already. Just nod so I can be sure you are still listening. She nodded, wondering when they would get started. She did feel sleepy. As James, Ahmed, and Stuart began talking about the easy song she would learn, she began drifting off. They called it an invocation, and said the words were quite beautiful. They agreed it was really more of a hymn. It was all so dull, Mary let herself drift off. Mary? Mary opened her eyes. She saw Ahmed sitting on the couch reading a book, while James and Stuart were conversing near her. 
She looked out the window and saw that it was late afternoon. I am so sorry. Did I fall asleep? She asked. You did, said James. Just as we asked you to. You did? She asked. You did fine, said Stuart. Listen, and he started to hum something. She found herself humming along, then singing a simply beautiful song she thought she had learned as a child. She felt it was one she had always known the words to. That's the first part of an invocation to the moon, said Stuart. It is more than four thousand years old and still as good as new. Since we've taken up your day, said James, can we buy you dinner? Mary realized she was quite hungry, which was odd since she could clearly recall eating. Thanks, she said. That would be wonderful. I have to get back, said Ahmed. I have doctoral candidates to bludgeon into finishing my research before they get on with their own silly lives. You head on out, and I'll take James home after we eat, said Stuart. If we eat at Marley's, I can take a cab, said James. That sounds like a good idea, said Stuart. He looked at Mary. Would you like to change? She nodded. Marley's. That was one of the two five-star restaurants in Cambridge. Wouldn't they need a reservation? She rose and trundled up the stairs. She changed into a black sweater, slacks and boots, put a brush through her hair, applied a little makeup, and returned to her living room. You really did quite well, James said as he escorted her from the house. That night, after possibly the best meal she had ever eaten, Stuart drove Mary home. He asked her about her work, where she sold her masks, how she came up with her designs, and whether any art galleries had ever offered to buy them. Mary found herself quite touched by his genuine interest in, and support for, her work. As he pulled onto the gravel drive that led to her house she asked, You haven't said much about your own activities. I know that you've received many awards, and I know you've written several books. What do you plan to research next? His expression became just a little sterner, and he said, My work with the society is taking up more and more of my time each day. I will be taking a leave of absence from the university in the weeks ahead. Really? Mary asked. Won't you miss your students? You seem to enjoy teaching. Stuart pulled up at her front door, put the car into park, and said, Well, I guess the good thing about studying the past is that it's not going anywhere. He stepped out of the car, walked around it, and let her out of the vehicle. He helped her across the gravel in her high heels and waited while she unlocked the door. Thank you she said as she lingered outside for a moment. I had a nice evening, he said. Sleep well, and we'll see you tomorrow. I think you'll find the next part of the invocation very interesting. She stepped in the house, slowly closed the door, and waited. After a little time she heard Stuart get into his car and drive away. As she walked up the stairs she thought about the million and one dates she had endured at university, each more awkward than the last. Perhaps she should have been dating professors rather than her peers. That night, she dreamed she was in the underground cathedral, wandering alone in the endless darkness. She heard a man singing and knew it was Stuart. His song curled around her, leading her first one way and then another as she sought for him. In time, other voices joined him in song, each adding their own unique harmony. The music became so beautiful that she wept.
Voice recording and story copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music created by D. Kurtzman and licensed from Pond5. Find more great stories at audioiron.com.